as somebody who can only get here by flying, I tell you, it's a four-hour flight almost from D.C. It's a long flight. It's a beautiful country to go over, and it's a big country. Now, now imagine if you were about to take a flight, and only imagine this is the flight of your life. Let's say you get to the airport late, but there's no line. It's just wonderful, and, and after a, a check-in that's just painless, uh, they assured you that your luggage would make your flight even though you were running late, you go to the security line and you notice they've randomly assigned you pre-check through TSA. You know, just, you, don't, you didn't sign up for it, but here it is. So you get to go to this nice line. It's your lucky day. There's nobody in front of you. You walk up to the TSA employee. They just look at your license, look at your ticket. They show you right through. You arrive at the gate early. You're 15 minutes. There's no running. There's no sweating. I mean, it's just wonderful. And then you've not had time to do it because you were running late. You look down at your ticket and you notice that your seat number is 1A. There must be some mistake. 1A, really? So you can tell this is just going to be a very, very good day. And then, imagine, and remember, I began just a moment ago with the word imagine. Imagine that the steward comes up to you and informs you that the pilot today will either have enough fuel or the correct directions. Which would you prefer? Well, I think that would be like choosing between, you know, the, the right wing or the left. Which one do you want to work today? I mean, you, you have to have both of these things to make it work. Now, if you're here this morning at Trinity Bible to get some help in life or to grow in your faith, this short book we've just turned to of Second John should be of help to you. It's a good place for you to look. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn to 2 John. Uh, there's a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible you can look at to find where it is. It's right towards the very end of it. John's second letter is a simple, clear message that is basic. Uh, and it's as basic, really, as both wings of a pilot. John writes this letter to warn us about accepting teachers that are unloving or untruthful. That's a simple summary of the book. John writes this letter to warn a church about accepting teachers that are either unloving or untruthful. Now, it's true that sometimes we can seem to have truth without love or love without truth. But John presses in on this point and says that real Christian love includes truth. And that real Christian truth includes love. If you take a little time to read 1 John this afternoon, the letter just before this one, you'll see that John wrote to Christians who had been struggling with that. And it seems that this second letter, he writes to another church in order to head off just this kind of struggle among their number. Now maybe you're wondering what's next in your Christian life. Uh, perhaps you're one of those who's more interested in the truth side than the love side of things. Or on the other hand, maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you've always been attracted to Christian love, but put off by some of the doctrine. Well, whatever side you tend to, I think looking carefully at this little letter will show us that just like that pilot needs fuel and directions, Christians need truth and love. Perhaps you can ask a, a good friend or your spouse or someone you work with, or parents, you can ask your kids how you're doing with these two, but with truth and with love. Let's see what they say. Are you 
clearly understanding the truth and communicating it? Are you expressing it in love? These are the two points of our study this morning. And I pray that as we consider them, uh, both you as a church, Trinity Bible, and we as individuals will grow in both. Let me just read our text, these first three verses here in 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The most basic issue is always the truth about Jesus. Let me just say that again. The most basic issue is always the truth about Jesus. Now, when I mention this in a room full of people who've uh, been to college or watched much TV, I need to be quick to point out that this truth has never changed. Uh, I've got to warn you that some people have made money and minor publishing careers publishing textbooks to undergrads with some version of Jesus was just a teacher who later theologians made into God. And I don't know if you've heard that, but here in this letter, we're looking at something written in the first century by someone who knew Jesus personally. And here you can piece together more of this by reading 1 John and the gospel that he wrote called John. And when John raises this question of of what is the truth, he's specifically talking about the truth about Jesus the Son. So you see here in verse 3, again, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, the large numbers are the chapter's numbers, but there's no chapter numbers in 2 John because it's all just one chapter. So all these little numbers in 2 John right before the sentence starts are not footnotes, but they're actually the numbers of the verse. So when I say verse 3, you just look down to verse 3, and we're looking at that line. So verse 3, John is so clear here. He mentions Jesus. Then John calls Jesus Christ. Now, now that's not his family name. It's not like you had Joseph and Mary Christ of Stable Way in Bethlehem. No, that's a title. It means anointed one, uh, anointed by God, the promised one, the Messiah. So John is saying here clearly that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel 34, verse 22, where we read the Lord promising Israel, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Jesus came teaching in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd. He was the fulfillment of the promise of David coming. In fact, here in verse 3, we see the relationship that's claimed is an even closer one than that. You see that phrase in verse 3, the Father's Son. Perhaps you remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very offensive statement to some United States senators these days. It's a very offensive statement to many hearts. This is undoubtedly what the Bible has always taught. 
Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why Jesus could teach this, because he alone had this unique relationship with his heavenly Father. Now, all of this seemed to be what was at issue in these churches in Asia Minor, what we today know as Turkey, uh, that John was addressing by writing this letter. Even in this greeting, John uses the word truth four times. Did you see that? Just, just count it up, looking through those quickly. There are four of them. Every time he uses that word truth, he's hitting on this issue specifically of who Jesus is. It is this truth that is at the center of any fellowship he was addressing, any fellowship that John shared with them. Friends, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian, and I'm saying this to those of you here who who aren't Christians today, you're very welcome. Let me just speak on behalf of this congregation. We're glad you're here. You're always welcome. Uh, Christians get together here at the beginning of every week at this time. Just come on anytime. But Christians are marked by being people who know the truth in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, One of the wonderful things that you find through Jesus is that we can literally know the truth. Maybe you're here this morning searching and tired, and you've tried this world's money, and you've tried this world's pleasure, and you've chased power, you've blown your mind with drugs or philosophy, you've found disappointment in love or confusion in searching in the academy. Friend, whoever you are, we're here to tell you that Jesus Christ is, as he himself said, the truth, and that you can come to know him. People in other religions sometimes mock us Christians for talking about knowing God. Uh, I've had more than one very religious friend of another religion literally make fun of me for claiming that I personally know God. He finds that a near blasphemous claim. But friends, our religion has at its very core the story of how God has, well, the word he uses, loved us. And the command that we are to love him. And it's not Jesus that started that command. He's quoting Moses in the Old Testament. Friends, how can we love someone we don't know? Of course, we come to know God personally. The the Bible uses the closest relational language to explain our relationship with God through Christ. He uses language of an adopted child, of a wife wed. That's why John here uses such relational language about the truth. You see there in verse 1, he refers to all who know the truth. Okay, knowing the truth is the language that John uses to describe a Christian. And he's just sounding like Jesus here. The last night Jesus had in his earthly ministry with his disciples, he prayed in John 17 and he said, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or if you look here in 2 John, if you just look back over the page or turn a page to 1 John, uh, the last chapter toward the end of that letter. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Now, if you read 1 John, you read through that letter, you'll find that there seem to have been some teachers in and around Ephesus, where John seems to have been one of the pastors, at the end of the first century, who were confused about Jesus and who were confusing others. These teachers seemed to downplay the physicality of the incarnation of Jesus. They would speak of him being spiritually present, but they didn't like the, the idea of a body. It seemed, it seemed dirty to them. It seemed demeaning to God to refer to him having flesh. And some were even denying that Jesus was the Messiah. It seems there could have been different specific errors, but they all centered around the truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. So when I was talking to the person sitting next to us on the plane coming out here, uh, we started talking about religion, and she identified herself as a Christian, and she said how many Mormon churches there were out here, and I just quickly pointed out that Mormonism was a lot more like Hinduism than like Christianity, uh, because it taught there are many gods. So Jesus is not the incarnation of the one true God. Jesus is one of an innumerable number of gods. Friends, it's always about Jesus. It's always about the truth about Jesus. It's centered around him. So so here in verse 2, when John refers to the truth that abides in us, again, he's just using language he learned from Jesus. Back in John 6, verse 27, when Jesus was teaching his disciples, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures or remains to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Well, friends, what's the food that endures to eternal life? Jesus is the food that endures to eternal life. He is that food. So faith in him, loving him, is how we take this food in. Uh, In 1 John, uh, John had used the language of abiding in Jesus Christ and the, the word of God abiding in us. There is, as the Puritans would express it, a mutual indwelling, us in Christ and Christ in us. And in this sense, eternal life is said to abide in us, eternal life. Friend, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're delighted you're here. This is really good news for you. Uh, I, hope you I hope you hear this. I hope you, you recognize this. The good God that made you, uh, against whom you have rebelled, you have sinned, as your own conscience tells you, has sent his only son to live a life of perfect love and trust in his heavenly father, to die on the cross a sacrificial death in the place of others, in the place of all who would turn and trust in him. Could you be one of those? Could that be you today? God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, the Son of God, ascended to heaven, presented the sacrifice of himself to his heavenly Father, who accepted it on behalf of all of us who would trust in Christ. If you want to know more about this, talk to some of the pastors that Josh had stand up today who were scattered around the place. Uh, Talk to the other people who are here. They would love to spend their Sunday talking to you about a question like this. That's why one of the reasons that Christians meet 
So friend, look into this. Think about this. Uh, this very church right now is doing a study through Mark's gospel. So are you back in Mark next Sunday? So come back next Sunday. It's, it's a perfect way to get introduced to Christianity to find out from that earliest and shortest of all the gospels, the gospel of Mark, who Jesus is. So this is a wonderful place to start your exploration of Jesus Christ and your own life and see what it would mean for you to come to know God through Jesus Christ. Well, you see here in verse 2, John intensifies this as he's thinking about it and adds, and will be with us forever. So Jesus is the truth that will be with us forever. He promised his spirit to his followers to do just this. In John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And of course, this truth will endure, will continue, will be with us forever, not simply distributively, as if John were speaking to each Christian individually, though that is true enough, but I think his emphasis here is corporately. The truth about Jesus is at the very center of the church that John was writing to, and it would continue to be at the center of their life together, both in this life and on into eternity. Friends, you realize this community would have no identity apart from knowing and trusting and believing the truth about Jesus. The truth about Jesus is the center point of any truly Christian church. So, my Christian friends, as you share the gospel with others, be sure that you're sharing with them the gospel. Not simply your own subjective experience of being converted or being filled with God's Spirit or having victory over sin or an answer to prayer. All those things are good. But when you share the good news with others, make sure you're telling them this great truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Verse 3 is the conclusion of the greeting, a kind of promise of the fruit of the truth among them. It's been beautiful to meditate on this week. I always, every morning in my quiet time, I'll read whatever passage I'm going to be hearing preached on this coming Lord's Day, whether I'm preaching or somebody else. You know, so I knew I was preaching on 2 John 1 to 3, so every morning I've been meditating on these verses, praying out of them. These have just been sweet verses. This, this trio here of grace, mercy, peace. It's the kind of stuff I've been praying for those of you that I know this week. Grace, mercy, peace. Grace, mercy, peace. John was promising them that in finding Jesus Christ, they had found all these. And they had found salvation. He was reminding them of this, even in the way he began his letter. Do you understand what each of these words means? Grace and mercy and peace. Maybe you sometimes don't have much use for theology. Perhaps you're often disinterested in questions of truth. Well, let me offer you a word of caution if that's you. If you don't pay careful attention to the basic truth about Jesus, you are leaving yourself open to false teaching. Spiritual malware could infect you. 
you could be taken hostage unless you give careful attention to this basic truth about Jesus. Don't make yourself susceptible to dangerous error. Friends, have you ever noticed how much of the New Testament has to do with getting your doctrine right? Truth is important. This pulpit is is like your weekly protective update to try to make sure that you continue to hear and believe the truth about who Jesus is. Don't ignore those freely offered updates from pulpits that teach the truth about Jesus. Well, we can tell that this truth is important from the last verse in our passage. It was planned from eternity by the Father Himself. This is all His plan. He came up with it. And this is why, as a local church, you have to be careful about what you teach. Speaking for the congregation that meets back in D.C. on Capitol Hill, our first act as a congregation was to adopt our statement of faith, uh, our summary of what we thought the Bible teaches on vital issues. And over 140 years after we purchased our little corner on the hill, we still think the Bible teaches all those same things. And if you want to join our church, you have to sign that statement. Not saying you are willing to be taught that, yeah, pagans are willing to be taught that, but saying that you actually think this is what the Bible teaches and that you too want to help these things be understood and known and taught and believed. So that's what our local churches are about in part, knowing the truth and making the truth known. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Also, we read here in verse 3, from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. So the truth is that Jesus Christ, by His life and self-giving death, has provided for us grace and mercy and peace, like the real kind, not, not the passing kind or the imitation kind. These all come through Christ and through the truth about Christ. That's why we Christians talk so much about Jesus. Even when we're preaching from the Old Testament, we talk about Jesus. We understand the whole book of the Bible through Jesus. That's why we sing about Him, about who He is, about what He's done every time we have a public gathering like this. That's why we are so careful that our sermons, like those that are preached here at the beginning of each new week, talk about Jesus. Christians are concerned to know the truth, and that means especially making sure that we are teaching each other here the truth about Jesus. Now, you realize I've had like one basic point in this whole point, and I'm just saying it in a thousand different ways. I'm like a a bumblebee going around a little plot of flowers right here, okay? It's the truth about Jesus, and I am doing that because here the Bible does that. We think the Bible is God's Word, and you've not come here to hear me, you've come here to hear from God. And this is what God in His Word says, that the truth about His Son is very, very important, and that Jesus is His Son. We also, however, even in these opening verses, see the importance also of Christian love. And so if this sermon has two wings, one is truth and the other is love, just like we see here in these verses. Uh, This is the other half of the Christian life that John writes about. 
I think we could even say that this truth and love make little sense without each other. The kind of truth that John has found in Jesus must express itself in love. And the love that he has learned from Jesus will always involve the truth. So specifically, when John mentions here in verse 1, loving the elect lady and her children, and then in verse 3, promising them grace, mercy, and peace in love, what's exactly he talking about? Well, John is talking about the brotherly familial love that is caused by and always accompanies the truth about Jesus. Affection, tender regard for the best for the other person. Uh, Just looking there at verse 3, you can see that God's grace is an expression of his love. Uh, That God's mercy, by which he forgives us through Christ, is an expression of his love. Uh, That the peace believers are given is not fundamentally a state of mind. You know, think daytime TV talk show, peace, peace. I want peace. No, not that. It can include that. But the peace he's talking about here is an actual cessation of hostilities and a restoration of a healthy, whole relationship between the Christian and God. And then also then between Christians, among Christians. And all of that, grace, mercy, peace, all of that is an expression of love. And you see how all this is related to the truth about Jesus? Well, it's John here in verse 1 that uses this expression of loving in the truth. Loving in the truth. By expressing it like this, John makes it clear that he is speaking of a love based on the revelation of truth in Jesus Christ. So his relationship with this elect lady is based in the fact that both John and this lady that he's referring to share a common understanding of who Jesus is. They share the truth. Really, the kind of love that John is writing about here is impossible without knowing the truth about Jesus. John had written in his first letter in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus has loved us uniquely. He has pioneered love to a new level, to a new depth of self-giving. And that's why John can write here in verse 2, not only of loving in the truth, uh, but as the ESV renders it here, loving because of the truth. So brothers and sisters, you see how our love is based on the truth. Uh, This truth generates love. Knowledge of this compels love. Jesus said, I, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. John wrote in his first letter, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. Oh, there's much more on this in 1 John chapter 4. So if this is the kind of stuff that you're not that interested in, I don't encourage you to spend any time there this afternoon. If this is, if this is the kind of stuff you're very interested in, turn back two chapters, 1 John chapter 4. Take 15 minutes to read it and reflect on it this afternoon. So, brothers and sisters, real 
love is based on truth. Real love is based on truth. That is why it is such an absolute waste of time to put effort into creating more unity by the means of having less and less doctrine. There are some people who call themselves Christians, some of whom may be Christians, well-intended, but, but foolish, who try to make there be less and less explicit statements of gospel doctrine so that we can all get together. But friends, true doctrine about Jesus creates true love and real unity. That's the only kind of unity we're interested in. We, we should never try to vagify our sermons in order to get along. In, in fact, it's our very shared perception of God's holiness, of our sin, and the amazingness of God's love to us in Jesus that shapes us. We Christians are not only commanded to love, we are compelled to love because of the truth that we have become convinced of and know. Now, if you're a pastor or elder here at Trinity, I pray that your love for this dear congregation is encouraged by reading this letter. I hope that you are able to begin your day along with your other duties by praying for this congregation. I hope that you've looked forward to not only what you would get here today when you came, but what you would be able to give. Is that your attitude when you come to church? Are you looking forward to seeing how you can give to others? What will the Lord allow me to be a part of extending in His name to someone else here today who could be helped by this, who could be blessed by this? Oh, friends, that should be true not just of the elders of this church, but by every member of this church. Surely it's especially true, though, of those who have the privilege of serving as elders. Brother elders, I exhort you, make this your attitude when you come together with the Lord's people. Pray that He would give you an outgoing love, uh, compelled in your heart by an understanding of the truth of how God has loved you in Jesus. John was writing this letter to warn these friends about a lack of such love on the part of certain teachers. And that lack of love was to be an indication that their teaching should be suspected. Now, for some people, when I say things like that, that's, that's news. You realize, don't you, that a church can call somebody a minister and even pay their salary and listen to their sermons and even like them, and that minister may not even be converted. He may not even be regenerated. He may not even really be a Christian. Friends, you've got to have a category like that or most of the New Testament will not make sense to you. Most of the letters in the New Testament are written to churches to warn them about fake stuff going on in the name of Jesus. So if you think you're just going to be real sweet and loving and never bother anybody about those questions of truth because that's judgmental and unloving, I just want you to know what you've got a hold of is not the Christianity that Jesus taught. It's not what's in the Bible. In the Bible, love and truth are inseparable. And we love by speaking the truth, and we cannot speak the truth without being compelled by love ultimately to God. John's letter, I think, is best understood through understanding that adjective there in verse 1. You see that in verse 1, it's like the fourth or fifth word, that, that adjective, elect. 
Elect means someone who is the object of God's love. God has chosen to set his love upon them. Friends, your whole community here has been created by the loving initiative that God has taken. In that sense, John's loving this elect lady is just following God's own way, as God himself has loved this elect lady and her children. Now, who is this elect lady? What's her name? Well, friends, I think it's just a local church. I think it's an image he's using for the local church. And her children then would be either her members or maybe churches that they had helped plant other churches. Um, Look down in verse uh, 13 here at the end of 2 John. You see, he mentions this, this mention of your elect sister. It would seem to be referring to the members of another church. So back up in verse 2, that us that's there twice, and again in verse 3, that's referring to John together with this church he's writing to and all its members, her children, uh, then together, that's going to be either, like I say, daughter churches or maybe the members of that church. Either way, it's a collection of Christians that John is writing to in a church or churches, Maybe they'd sent some delegation to inquire of John about the teaching they had been getting and saying, Pastor John, can you help us out with this? Well, so John here addresses the church as elect, very much like Jesus had elected his disciples. You remember Jesus saying this to them again on that last night he spent with them in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus told them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's how Peter addressed the Christians that he wrote to. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then Peter, in writing that letter, by the way, described his own church as a woman. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And do you know what's to mark out all these people elected by God? Love. Do you know how you're supposed to tell that somebody has been loved by God? They themselves should be loving. They should be marked by love. We see it here in what he's writing. Brothers and sisters, love is to be the mark. It's to be our characteristic It's to be our signature in the world that points beyond us to Jesus Christ, to the one who has loved us so. How God has treated us, how he has elected us. Honestly, brothers and sisters, does this characterize your life? This week that's just finished yesterday, who have you provoked by your unbelievable love? into wondering, what's going on with him? What's going on with her? How can, how can she keep giving like that? John here was certainly testifying to his love for this church. In verse 1, that phrase, whom I love in the truth, in the original, the I is in an emphatic position, whom I love in the truth. Perhaps he was distinguishing himself from the false teachers who were coming around teaching these false things. So they didn't really love him. They may want to fleece him and get their money, but they didn't really love him. But John, on the other hand, I love the, these people. I love them. Like, unlike these shepherds who had little care for the sheep. 
Friends, with us, our love for the sheep is part of our love for the one who laid down his life for the sheep. So you realize as you sit under Josh's ministry, your confidence in Josh and his ministry is only partly in his love for you. It's even more firmly in his love for Jesus. And if Jesus laid down his life for you, you are purchased at such a dear price. Will he not also, who so loves the Lord Jesus, love you, whom the Lord Jesus has loved at such a cost? What a good elder John is being here by both his carefulness and his love. Of course, we should always speak the truth in love. I think one challenge we have to pray to God to help us with these days is when we find ourselves in situations where speaking the truth is by definition considered unloving. Ah, then doesn't make, doesn't make it exactly impossible for us to obey specifically what John is writing here. Well, no. Friends, it's like the idea that there are closed countries. There are no closed countries. There are only countries in which it's much harder to preach your second sermon. (laughs) Friends, you, you, you can be loving toward others even if they misunderstand and mistake your love as being unloving. You can persevere. Josh prayed for our brother Russ Vogt. Well, regardless of whatever Russ's economic policies may be or he may advocate, I can tell you he was a member of our church, uh, married uh, a woman in our church, uh, then moved out to Virginia, and is at Cherrydale Baptist Church, a sister congregation. He's an elder there. He's a good and godly man. And he was attacked by a senator from Vermont verbally and a senator from, from Maryland uh, this last week in front of the whole nation, uh, suggesting that because he believed that only Christians would be saved, He was unfit for public service because, to quote Bernie Sanders, our country is not about people like him. Well, uh, you know, I was concerned about statements like that. Friends, regardless of whether our, our nation decides to follow that kind of tyranny and decides to forsake the religious liberty that we've known in the past and that we still enjoy today in some measure, friends, regardless of that, we can speak the truth in love even if it's not recognized as being loving. If you find yourself in a difficult situation where you want to speak the truth, but you know the person is going to hear it as unloving, do not come ask me, as a guy who's just here for one weekend, what you can do. Talk to the people who know you, who know your character, who know your language. Talk to elders here at this church if you're a member here. Ask for advice. They'll give you time. Lay out the situation in your family, perhaps in your marriage maybe with one of your kids, or with one of your neighbors, or someone you work with. Help them understand and and get their advice and counsel, and if nothing else, their prayer for you as you try to speak the truth and love in very challenging situations. Because, of course, esteem and even affection doesn't always mean we're going to agree. Anytime somebody characterizes simple disagreement as, by definition, abuse... If you disagree with me, you're abusing me. Friends, just challenge them on that. And if they won't change, pray for them and find others to talk to them. 
Again, calling everything we don't like abuse obscures the very real and terrible abuses that do too often happen in our world. If you are involved in some real abusive relationship, please speak to one of your elders about it. If you wonder if that's what you're involved in, describe it to one of your elders. Friends, esteem and affection does not always mean agreement. And as every parent knows, it certainly doesn't always mean allowing someone to do whatever they want. You can love your five-year-old and not let them do what they want. And that's not unloving of you. It's loving. Well, anyway, this Christian love that John is describing here is naturally expansive. So John points out here in verse 1 that this love for them is experienced not only by himself, but he says by all those who know the truth. All of them experience this kind of love. It's a wonderful fulfillment of what Jesus had said in John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus had promised his disciples that knowing the truth would not be a a pointless, private, merely mental thing. And here they were being freed from the small, constricted space of selfishness. They were being freed, and so their love went out now in affection to other Christians and even between churches, to other churches. Now, Jesus here, or John here rather, is not speaking directly about loving non-Christians. His point is about the love that's created by sharing the same understanding of God's love in Jesus. But it is true that having experienced undeserved love like God has given to us in Jesus, and then learning in God's Word about how His love has gone before ours, that does then compel us to reach out to others in love. And again, friend, since you're here for your weekly spiritual checkup, I'll just ask you, how has that outgoing love been this week? Can you think of others that you have shared God's love with, that you've told them about Jesus because of this love? And if you haven't, what does that mean? And is there someone you could talk to about this and pray with about this? We have been given such riches of God's love, haven't we? Again, it's been such sweet verses for me to meditate on this week. Look again at verse 3. Here we are promised the fruit of love, God's grace to us, acting toward us in a way that we have not deserved. God's mercy extended to us despite our sins that have called for His judgment. God's peace, where there should have been only condemnation, God has propitiated His own justice by Christ's death. And so John now can write to these fellow Christians and remind them, assure them, of God's salvation today and tomorrow and forever as he writes, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in love. Thank God for the family where so many of us first got a taste of this kind of love. You realize that's what the family is there for? uh, To begin teaching us with little metaphors what God's love is like. So it's not like the, the Christian physical family is the apex, is the, is the height of the experience of real humanity. No, 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 it's grade school. Everything is not about the family. 
So family-centered churches, I think, have that wrong. No, 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 no. The, the church is here for single people, here for widowed people, here for children. No. The family is not the apex of it all. The family is the beginning point. It is the entry point. It is the way even non-Christians are taught something of what a kind of selfless love means. I've known plenty of families uh, where they're not Christian, but they have pretty good families, and I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful for any shards of God's love in this fallen world. You know, a, a good father or a good mother doesn't look at the child's room and say, not good enough, move out. No, friends, there, there are all kinds of people who, who give examples of the kind of enduring love that are dim reflections of God's love for us in Christ. God has put us in families to learn the first baby steps of love for those outside ourselves. And we move out from there to show love to others that aren't like us at all, and to show love that we've received ultimately from God Himself, and that ultimately we're to give back to God Himself. So our families are all sort of meaning in God's intention to aim us to loving God. We love mom and dad and our brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents as a means to pull our naturally selfish hearts out of self-love to love others not so that we'll ultimately build a shrine to them and to our family, but so from these kinds of loves pulling us outside of ourselves, we ultimately are brought by God's Spirit to love God Himself through Jesus Christ. And that's the love that we're called to, that our families are meant to reflect. And we receive then the church as our new extended family as we learn to love more and more people. You see there in... Verse 3, that very clearly, I think, uh, that word from, there in verse 3, John shows us the source of this love. This love comes ultimately from the Father. So God has loved this church that John is writing to. Even this letter of instruction is part of God's love for this church. So John's own love for this church has come because they share the same love uh, for God and Jesus they share what it means to be elected, to be loved by God. Again, this word elect shows something of how this has come from the Father. He has elected us in His love. He has planned it from eternity. Brothers and sisters, when we've come to know ourselves as the objects of God's love in Christ, we're not only hearing then His command to love, but we feel compelled to love that we would be recipients of such love from such a one. His Holy Spirit in us helps us to view others then more as He does. And not in what we might need or want from them, but in how we could love them and help them, and especially in how we could show them God's love in Christ. Don't you love to love other people in the Lord? Isn't that just a wonderful participation in the image of God that he allows us to be? Do you wonder why the role of a mother is so famously fulfilling for all of its challenges? Tell us why a close friendship can be such a blessing from God because it so nearly reflects what God himself experiences and has made us to experience in his image. 
Of course, whenever we mention God's love, our minds go immediately to Christ, don't they? So it was by the Son's sacrifice on the cross that God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace were expressed and purchased. So we stand in debt to Him more profoundly than we could ever stand in anyone else's debt. We owe to Him more than we could ever owe to anybody else. And friends, how important all of this is for the local church. Beware of anyone who comes into Trinity Bible Church promoting truth by downplaying love. Or promoting love by downplaying truth. Positively, as a church, Christians love to love other Christians. This is not an unusual or a surprising experience. We, we love to pray for other churches on Sunday morning. We, we love to greet pastors of other congregations, as Josh did here in your name today, uh, to help them, to support their work, to speak well of their work, to encourage them. Is that your experience as a church? Have you ever been wrongly tempted to be proud of being a member of the congregation of sinners called Trinity Bible Church? Has that ever ever been a temptation to you? Friends, pray that God cause his love to dwell richly among you in your congregation. I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We want to be inspectors of grace, looking carefully to see all the praise that we can give God for what he's doing that we know of here in Phoenix whether that's through other Bible churches or Baptist churches or Acts 29 churches or E-Free churches or Anglican churches or Presbyterian churches or churches that you have out west that are called things like the brook and the vine and the creek and the hill and (laughs) things like that. Regardless of what they call themselves, if they're congregations of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, they believe the truth about Him, They're shaped around his word. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ. There are sister congregations. Regardless of what denominational affiliations there may or may not be, those don't matter in heaven. They don't exist in heaven. Friends, we have a unity that comes from being bought by the same blood. Our unity is thick in Christ. I may be uh, more reformed in my theology, as some people call it, but I'll tell you, a Methodist who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is my brother and sister in Christ. I love them dearly. Christ has died for them. Friends, does your church reflect that kind of unity in your prayers, in the way you speak? God's people should be, God's people are, marked by truth and marked by love. Some of you here who read Christian theology will have heard of B.B. Warfield. You will know that 100 years ago, he was a professor at Princeton in New Jersey. He was a prolific author. He was a a kind of Mr. Valiant for Truth, who battled in his own denomination and through his writings around the world. Fewer people today know about his love. Warfield never traveled to speak at conventions or conferences. He didn't speak or preach anywhere else than Princeton, New Jersey. Why is that? Well, the same year he was married to Annie, Uh, they journeyed through Germany, 
And while on their honeymoon, they were caught in a fierce storm, and his wife, his new wife, Annie, was struck by lightning, and she was permanently paralyzed. The continued care and love that Warfield devoted to his invalid wife throughout the remainder of her life were mentioned often by those who knew him personally. Because of her needs, Warfield very seldom left home for more than two hours at a time. I mention this, friend, not in the narrow thought that only Christians could know and express such love. Again, I thank God for every expression of love that reflects God's image by each person today, regardless of where they may be religiously. But there is a special echo of God's self-giving love for us in Christ that was reflected in Warfield's sure care for his wife. Uh, There was a planningness, a deliberateness, a commitment, a tenderness, uh, a goodness, a, a freeness, all of which reflected the way that Warfield himself had come to know God's love through Christ. Warfield knew that he himself deserved God's wrath and deserved God's punishment, but he had fled to Jesus for refuge, and he had found it there, washed in his blood, He didn't choose between truth and love. He knew that one involved the other. This truth involves this love. And the truth and the love that he had known from Jesus now presented Warfield a pattern for him to love others by, even his own wife in God's providence. Thank God for the truth about Jesus. Thank God for his love. And thank God for this little book that tells us about both. Let's pray.